Well, it's good to be back. Last weekend, as I think uh, was mentioned, uh, Fliss and I were down at Bournemouth Vineyard. We were speaking there at their 12th anniversary. And I'm not sure quite whether this has anything to do with, with the sermon I have for you this morning. But it was just such a wonderful story. I just wanted to share it before I forgot it, to be honest. There's so many wonderful stories. But, but at the end of the service, there was a hog roast because it was a big, sort of, as I say, 12th anniversary celebration. And I was sitting there eating my, uh, my hog roast, and uh, the, the senior pastor there, a bloke called Rob, known him for years, was sat there, and the afternoon sort of went on, and uh, then just as people were beginning to leave, two little boys came up. I, I guess they were like five and six and seven or eight, something that sort of age, with their, their sort of mother uh, hanging bit back, and uh, they came up and they threw their arms round Rob's... Oh, thanks very much, Bruce. Thanks. Thank you very much. They threw their arms around Rob and gave him a big hug, very, very tenderly. It was very sweet. And, and Rob, uh, he's had some health issues recently, and he was a bit emotional. He started to well up, he kind of apologized to me, not that there was a need to. He said, I'm, I'm really sorry. It just, that just touched me. And he said, you know, their mother, their mother was the first working girl that came to Christ in this church. Bournemouth, as, as indeed many places these days, has uh, quite a, a large sex industry. And uh, he said, you know, I, I will always remember that morning that she, she came into our midst and, and, and really came home to Jesus. And, and not that I wanted to, but before I could stop him, he was telling me the story. He said, you know, that morning, I remember it so well, I was going to do a kind of a little illustration. There was, the kids were in and all sorts of things. And I was going to tell the story of when Jesus was in a rich man's home and suddenly a woman comes in, a woman of, of the night, a working girl comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet and she weeps and weeps and weeps and her tears fall onto Jesus' feet and then she dried the tears with her hair and actually Jesus' host at that time it was, it was quite clear what he was thinking it was like what the get out what do you get, get out but Jesus stopped him protesting and said this is a lovely thing she's doing uh, you didn't wash my feet when I came in off the street. She has washed my feet with her tears. And you know, they love much for whom much has been given. It's a lovely story. Anyway, Rob has decided to tell this story and he's going to illustrate it a bit because there's a few kids in and what have you. And he has an intern pastor. And uh, he gets the intern pastor to come up on the stage. And he says, okay, now, Nick, I want you to lie out and recline like Jesus would. Well, just at that moment, the back doors of the hall, the school hall that they were in, sort of fly open. And in totters a wor- this working girl. And she kind of comes in. She's still in her working clothes. And she dumps herself down. And the whole church goes, ooh, like that, you know. And he said, okay, now we need... Somebody, we need a, a, a lady of the night to come down here and, uh, and, and, and play the part of the, the woman who, and without any hesitation, this woman who just plonked herself down, stood up and totters down to the front of the church. Well, Rob said, at that moment, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> the whole church, I don't know, we got such issues with this. The whole church kind of froze And Rob couldn't believe what was unfolding, but he had a kind of sense that this was a God moment. 
And this woman, who they've never seen before, all dolled up, over the top, totters down towards him, sort of very brazenly, you know. And he says, oh God, what, I, what, I, what should I do? And then Jesus said to him, do what I did. And so as the woman came forward, she said, what do you want me to do? And Jesus said, I've got something to say from you from the Lord. Daughter, your sins are forgiven you. And she just broke down. She collapsed. Floods of tears. There was this hard, brittle shell. Life had dealt her and she'd made, uh, dealt her a rough hand and she'd made some hard choices. And there, when Jesus welcomed her and spoke tenderly to her and said, Daughter, your sins are forgiven you. She broke. And from then, this was about six years ago, her life has slowly, it hasn't happened overnight, slowly turned around. And Rob told his story, all teary, and I saw those lovely little boys walking out the door, and I saw this woman, a very attractive woman actually, but looking like she'd known a bit of the world. I don't quite know how to tell the story. But now she was in a community of believers, and she was doing well. Wonderful story. I'm not sure why I told that, but I wanted to tell it, because I will forget there are so many wonderful stories these days. It is so exciting to be part of something where there's life. Well, I want to crack open God's Word this morning, and just to remind you what we're about, we're actually, we're actually uh, encouraging you to get a copy of this from the bookstore. It's called The Big Story. We're subbing the price, so it comes out at £2.50. And if you haven't got your copy yet, get one. And really what it is, it's, it's a book that helps us get an overview of the Bible. Now, many of us know very little about the Bible. Some of us know quite a lot about the Bible. But one thing that seems to be very common is that we don't actually know how it all fits together. It is, after all, a library of books. And we tend to go back to favorite books, but, but leave those sort of technical ones on the shelf for a rainy day or whenever. But what we're trying to do is give you an overview so you know how things hang together. And hang together they do. I was thinking about this last night. It's a difficult thing that we in the preaching team are trying to do because there are so many things we want to tell you about when we start talking about the big story. But we're trying to be really disciplined. And we're hoping that you are going to dig in and, and, and find the treasure. To, do an, to, to use another sort of illustration, it's a bit like this. What we on the preaching team are trying to do is give you the skeleton. If you were to see my skeleton standing here, you, you wouldn't really get the real character and the depth of me, or any of us for that matter. But without the skeleton, I, I would be completely lost. I'd just be a, a flobby lump on the floor. The skeleton is critical to understanding who I am. And the skeleton... Of, of understanding this book and how it fits together will help you as you fit your piece of, the, of the, the jigsaw together to use a third illustration. So I really want to encourage you to dig into this because all we are trying to do is give you the big story, the skeleton with which to hang all the flesh, the clothes, the lovely colored eyes, the, the hair, etc. on. So that's what we're trying to do. Now in the first week, Rich stepped up, started us off with the story of creation. 
how out of nothing God created something. And the something was the earth, the cosmos, all that is seen and unseen, and it was and is good. But man, who was given the privilege of being God's representative and ministering and stewarding and caring for all this, decided that he wanted it all and he wanted it now. And what should have been perfection became something that was an offense to God. They turned their hearts away from God and all hell broke loose, quite literally. Now Rich introduced that. You go back to the talk, read the first chapter of the big story, you'll get the flesh on the skeleton. All I can do is give you the skeleton. No color of the eyes, no distinguishing features. Last week, Den stepped up. Den was talking about how God is relentless in his love for us. Relentless. I love that word. In fact, I'm about to launch a, a series that Rick has put together for the Burn Church in the evenings next week called Relentless. God is absolutely relentless. When God saw that we had, we had marred, disfigured his creation, turned our hearts away from his, he didn't wash his hands and say, right, I'm off to another universe, goodbye and good riddance. God is eternally creative. And God is relentless in his love for you and me. He keeps pressing on him. He keeps wooing. He keeps yearning. He keeps planning to redeem and turn that which is broken into something that is whole. And so immediately, immediately there was this catastrophe in Eden. God made plans to turn it around. And he chose a man. He said to this man, Abraham, I'm going to make a people. I'm going to make a nation and you're going to be my nation. And he called, and he called them to obedience so that they might be a channel of blessing. He gave them promises. We call them covenants. That God would use them, that they would be his people and he would be their God. Part of God's rescue plan. And again, it went pear-shaped. Now my little... My little bit of the baton, a sort of relay race this morning is entitled The Promised Land. The Promised Land. Now that is a, a concept that's banded around even today. I remember a few years ago I was driving up to uh, Leeds to go to a conference and there was some sort of citywide promotion, you know, uh, trying, to, trying to sort of large up Leeds if it's possible, you know, sort of think well of Leeds and be proud of Leeds. And, and it was called the promised land. And I couldn't bear, I could hardly stifle a chuckle as I drove into Leeds. I lived there for five years in the inner city. Drove into Leeds and there on the urban motorway it said, Leeds, the promised land. And I thought, gosh, I hope it's better than Leeds. <laughs> I, I hope I'm not offending if you are, if you are from Leeds. But um, <laughs> The promised land. It is a very strong and very emotive thought. But what God did was he, he took a slave nation. By this time things have gone pear-shaped again as Dan was telling us. God's people. It's hard to believe but God's people have rejected God again. And they end up. And let's have my first screen up please Matt. They end up as a slave nation. This is historically documented. They built many of the pyramids. They were the labor that built those things. The Hebrews, as they were called. 
These were God's people. But God, again, is relentless. God presses in. God mounts a a rescue mission. He speaks to a guy called Moses, a guy who was familiar with the the courts of Pharaoh. And he, he commissions him to go into the courts of Pharaoh against Moses' better judgment, I have to say. Read the story yourself again. I'm just doing the skeleton. And basically, essentially what God says is that he's going to deliver them. He's going to bring them out of Egypt, a slave nation. They're going to escape from their captors. And indeed, he says, I, the Lord God, have come to rescue them out of slavery and bring them out into a wide and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, Palestine as we know it today. The promised land. That was what God's gift, a physical place, not a concept, not an ideal, although interestingly enough that is part of the big picture, but it was a physical place. And God was as good as his word. He rescued them, he brought them out of Egypt, and after many adventures and many setbacks, needless to say, remember we're, being, we're dealing with human beings who are fickle at the best of times, He brings them into this land of milk and honey, the promised land. He raises up a a great young warrior, a man called Joshua. Actually, he's not so young when they actually go across the Jordan, when they invade. He's got a few years on him, but he's got a a youthful spirit. He's he's sure that that God is going to do what he said. And they arrive in the promised land and he gathers all the people together and says, God has done an amazing thing for us. Now go to your own homes, set up, you know, you know, till the ground, tend your vines, tend your olive trees. But one last thing before you all go. It is the Lord our God who has done this. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. An incredible moment. I wish I'd been there. A moment of fulfillment, a moment of restoration, redemption, promise. But guess what? No sooner do the Israelites get into their, their hometowns than they start, instead of, sort of, instead of remaining solely devoted to God, they begin to, their eyes begin to wander. And the next thing they know, they've got little house gods in little alcoves in the house. And they're, they're praying to the gods of the, the nations that they've displaced. They're, they're beginning to sacrifice their children, would you believe? It goes horribly pear-shaped. And then, or, and then under the, during that season, they had a series of, of men and women called judges who kind of try to hold the... The nation together. There were 12 tribes and they were often falling out with another. It was just going the way of Eden all over again. And finally this this great character who had a passion. God put a passion in his heart for these people. A guy called Samuel comes along. And they come along to Samuel. And they essentially want to keep up with the Joneses. What do I mean by that? They come to Samuel and say, look, we've got all sorts of trouble. You know, we've got all these issues with our borders and people keep invading and things keep going wrong, etc., etc. It doesn't occur to them to remember God who delivered them, who gave them this land of, of, of promise. 
They decide that the reason they're having all this trouble is that they haven't got a king. That actually was almost the last straw for the Lord God Almighty. The reason being is that the way God intended it to be for Israel at that time was that he was their king. And if they'd sought his face and sought his wisdom, his counsel, his insights, his help, he would have dealt with his enemies. But they're so caught up in their own busyness and their their fallenness and their competitiveness and their aggressiveness and all the rest of it that they don't think beyond the end of their noses. And suddenly they want to keep up with the Joneses and they say to Samuel, Samuel, find us a king. We need a king. Then we'll be like the other nations and they'll fear us. Well, I could spend a lot of time putting the flesh on the stories of the first kings of Israel. There was Saul, first of all, a great warrior. And to some degree, he did, he did secure the borders, but came to a bad end. Then there was David, like little David who was dedicated this morning. The parents, Colin and parents prayed that he would be like David. And David was a great king. Many would say he was the greatest of Israel's kings. He was actually a very broken man. He made some horrendous mistakes. But if David had a saving grace, it was that he was passionate about God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters. He lays me down in green pastures. He restores my soul. That's where that psalm came from, King David. His son, Solomon, built the temple. And it would seem for a few brief moments that the golden age had finally arrived. All that promise, all that fulfillment came to pass. Solomon was a great king, a wise king, a gifted king. He secured the borders. He worked out attractive trade deals with other nations. Israel prospered for a brief period of time. And then the neighbors from hell moved in. Solomon went a little too far. He started sealing, as was the custom, in fairness to him, he started sealing these these trade agreements by marrying daughters of foreign gods. He had many wives, many mistresses. And every time they cracked a good deal with Whoever, there was a marriage to seal the deal. It became family then. That was the thinking. It wasn't us and them. Now we're family. But the wives brought with them their gods, their detestable practices, their sacrifices, right into the very heart of Israel. And the Israels followed them. Israel lost its way. And to be honest with you, it ends in divorce. What do I mean by that? The children of Israel are so sold on the foreign gods, the foreign blessing, the foreign affluence, they forget the Lord their God. There is a divorce. But more than that, Israel itself begins to break down. I told you there was 12 tribes. There's disagreement, there's dissension, there's, there's trouble at home. 
And it ends up with ten of the northern tribes going off in one direction, and two of the other tribes, the southern tribes, Judah, going off in another direction. A house divided falls, and this house was very divided, and it fell. This next era is probably one of the darkest eras of Israel's history. God himself removes his blessing. All sorts of hell breaks out. There are wars and other wars. There are famines. There are droughts. It's just hell. Living in hell. They had neighbors from hell. Now they live in hell. But God, I said right at the beginning, is relentless in his love. And he keeps pursuing them. He keeps sending voices, ambassadors, emissaries. Often these voices, these ambassadors, these emissaries, we call them prophets. They were individuals appointed and anointed by God to to try and appeal to anyone who would listen, to turn back to the living God, he who is life, he who is the source. Names like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah later on. The minor prophets we call them, Hosea, Micah, and Amos. These voices, remember, the Lord your God, your God is a promise keeper. If you turn to him, he will remember his promises. Most of the time, these prophets got short shrift for their messages. At best they were ignored, at worst attempts were made on their lives. And just when it seemed like it could not get any worse, with the prophets now saying, if you don't turn to the Lord your God, you will be taken off into exile. The Lord brought you here out of Egypt, he can take you off again. More of that next week or two weeks time. Just when it seems like all is doom, all is gloom, it simply cannot get any worse. The Lord sends Isaiah the prophet with a special message. For some of you, this message may seem slightly familiar. Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on, God's own passion, his own zeal will do this. Our God 
looks upon mankind, sees them floundering, falling apart, self-destructing. And then he sends the message of Isaiah, right? (sighs) I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to send one. I'm going to send one who will rule with righteousness, who will gather my peoples together, who will be after my own heart and will reestablish my kingdom. That's what he's saying. If the reading sounds familiar, it's because this reading is read commonly to this day at our carol services. It's a prophecy, it's a foretelling of the sending of God himself. God with us, Emmanuel. God who rolls up his sleeve in his relentless love to come and save us. Even though we as a people have prostituted ourselves with idols and passions and and ambitions and man, it's going on today, isn't it? God the Father has sent Jesus to us who looks upon us, tottering down the aisle, full of attitude and arrogance and says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. This is at the very heart of what the church is doing. This is the very heart of what we're trying to communicate. It gets cluttered up with all sorts of other good things, but at the very heart, the skeleton of what we do, what we are, is what we call the gospel. The good news that God himself has come to us to rescue us. The promised land. Still full of promise to this day. Can we all stand?